Uh, it's been a, a great, great blessing spending these last uh, few days with you. And uh, thank you for welcoming me to uh, your world here and especially to this pulpit to bring God's word. I'd like us to go to uh, Paul's letter to the Colossians. Let's read verse 1 through uh, 17, though I intend to preach from verse 5 to the end of the chapter. <clears throat> Colossians 3. Please hear the word of God. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you've, you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. <clears throat> Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of this, the wrath of God is coming. In this, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate heart, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all this, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you that we can sit to hear your word today. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have revealed yourself so specially to us in your word. And Lord, your word also tells us how to live now that we have been born again. And we ask now, Lord, that you may help us to receive your word with meekness. We will, uh, we will be transformed by the renewal of our minds and be conformed 
to your likeness, O Lord. Pour your Spirit abundantly upon us to teach us what you'd have us learn and to help us, Lord, to uh, be sanctified and be transformed to what you want us to be. So do be with us, hear us, O Lord. You would be a blessing to each one of us as we are built up in our most holy faith. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm calling this message uh, Prescriptions for Christian Life. So this is not a prescription to become a Christian. It's assumed that you're already a Christian. You know that there is only one prescription for an unbeliever to believe in Jesus Christ and to be saved. But the prescriptions here is to us who name the name of the Lord, because the Bible says that, that God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal that let everyone who names the name of, of, of the Lord depart from iniquity. So our daily practice as believers must conform to our new position in Christ Jesus. He says here, if then you've been raised with Christ, if you've been saved, if you've been conveyed from the domain of darkness into the marvelous light of his kingdom, if you've been washed by the blood of the Lamb, this is what the Lord Jesus expects of you and me. Our minds need to be set on something different from what our minds used to be set on. There has to be a transformation. Having been saved by grace alone, you become Christ's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So how shall we live since we've been raised up with Christ? and are seated with him in the heavenlies. How are we to live? How are we to live now that we have died and our lives are hidden with Christ in God? How are we to live? Paul to the Colossians has four or rather three prescriptions. He says, put to death, verse 5, and he adds, put them all away, in verse 8. And then in verse 9, he says, put off. And then in verse 12, he says, put on. So the first pill then, you know, there are peas there. So the first pill is, in this prescription, is to put to death. All that is earthly in you. Put to death all that is earthly in you. What is it that we are to consider dead? 
It's the same idea in Romans 6, verse 11. It is an imperative statement. And he is saying here, be constantly counting upon the fact or reckon yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Put to death or treat as dead that which is dead. So, we are to realize that there are things that must die as we are conformed to the image of our God. As we are being conformed to Christ, there are things that must die. The word translated uh, uh, put to death is mortify. And it tells us that there are some things that must not be in any Christian life. They must go. They must be cut off like tumor. They must be removed. It's a command that, is, that, that requires a decisive action on the part of the believer. And thank God, the Spirit of God helps us in this putting to death. So the Spirit of God is the one administering this in our sanctification. So let's take the knife and surgically remove sin because it must be dead. So then I ask you, what is it in your life that raises its hand up against Christ? What thoughts or attitudes or behaviors or even ambitions or plans or even values that keep you from doing the will of God? Is there some self-centeredness that needs to be removed from your life? Well, you might say, I've been a Christian for a long time. I'm a mature Christian. I don't have this kind of problems. So then I ask you, how do you read this? How do you read this? If the Word of God tells us to put them to death, and you're saying, I don't have those kind of issues to deal with in my life. And how easy it is to say, I wish so and so my neighbor or my son or my daughter was here to, to hear this message. But that's not what the Lord is thinking this morning, is it? He is saying that this is for you. This is for me. The Bible says then that put them to death. What? What is described here as earthly? And you notice that Paul doesn't say... Uh, that these things are only true of immature believers. We, got, we get caught up in all sorts of besetting sins, sadly, to our shame. And, uh, and we shame the name of our Savior that way when we fall into this kind of uh, 
sins. Again, you notice that they are all grouped together. I mean, sexual immorality and impurity is put together with covetousness. Because they are all sinful. They are all against the desires of our Savior. So when the Bible says sexual immorality, it refers to any kind of illicit sexual behavior outside of marriage relationship. It's all sexual immorality, including adultery and fornication and homosexuality and lesbianism and, and uh, bestiality and uh, incests and pornography. All that is put together in that one word. Impurity means uncleanness, filthiness in a moral sense. And it, it's talking about a perverted lifestyle. And you know, even James does tell us that we put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Passion. Uh, it refers to inordinate affection, a strong drive that does not cease until it is satisfied. This is a strong desire and can, can be either good or bad. But in the context, it indicates a depraved passion. This, this person is a slave to his evil desires. He is he's, he's a, he's, he's a driven person who is obsessed by his own evil persons, passions. Excuse me. And then there is evil desire. You can see how closely related they are. And uh, it means desire or longing for something that is forbidden. It is wanting to eat the forbidden fruit. It is a lust for all evil in a broad sense of uh, anything evil. And Paul probably includes the word here to cover every conceivable evil that is against the holiness of God. And then he talks about greed or covetousness. Insatiable with the idea to desire more than what God has given you. It's a selfish greed that cannot be satisfied. And here is the person who wants that which is forbidden to him. It is beyond his means. And how easy it is for all of us to want to live beyond our means. So, Paul says, all of these I want in life amount to idolatry. Greed amounts to idolatry. Material possessions and passions take the place of God. Jesus made it very clear in Matthew 6, 24, when he said, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. So what are you worshipping today? 
is that Jesus, Jesus said you must seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. This does not mean that we are to use God as a means to get material position or riches, but it's telling us that there is that which is the most important. And so Paul reminds his readers once again, this is the way you used to live. This was what you were in the past, but not anymore. For an, on, he says, verse 6, for an account, on account of these things, the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. The wrath of God is a deep-seated, just anger of God against these sins. And the wrath of God is revealed now and also will come in the future. When you read in Romans 1, excuse me. That the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who in their ungodliness suppress the truth. It's being revealed now. And so God gives people up to their wickedness. But then he says here that on account of this, the wrath of God is coming. It's coming. Because God is holy. God is just. The wrath is a result of God's holiness and righteousness against sin. Uh, He is is so, so holy that he cannot behold evil. God is will not tolerate sin, whether in unbelievers, and so he will send them to hell if they don't repent, or even in believers. And so, when the Corinthian church went into divisions and all sorts of wickedness, Paul tells them that that's why some of you have become ill and weak, and some have died. God does not tolerate sin, and he will not wish it away. He will not wink at sin. So the day of judgment will come, and God will deal with our sins either by the atoning sacrifice of Christ, or the unrepentant sinner will pay fully for his own sins. But for us who've been saved by Jesus Christ, by his blood, we have to realize that it was our sins that held him there on the cross so that we don't go back to the filth that we used to be. And so Paul says here that in in them you once walked. It's in the past You once walked when you were living in them. Not anymore, he says. Your lifestyle before coming to Christ was characterized by these sins. And the idea is you, as well as those who are still living this way, even now, need to realize that this is not becoming of Christians. Because he says here that you walked in the past. 
but not anymore. The believers used to partake of this kind of lifestyle, but no longer should we go back to them. You used to live this way, but thank God you don't anymore. And that's what he tells the Corinthians too in 1 Corinthians 6, where he says in verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men in the Men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says, and such were some of you. He doesn't say, and such are some of you. He says, and such were some of you. But you are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So clearly there has been a transformation. Praise God. There has been a transformation. We are not what we used to be. No. The Lord has been at work in us. There has been a change in our lifestyle. And so, verses 8 and 9 says, uh, your defensive reactions to life have also changed. Now that you've been raised with Christ, go ahead and take some old behaviors off. All of them. They all must go away. And you notice that the Lord Jesus is also the Lord of our emotions. He is the Lord of our passions. You know, sometimes people say, well, I don't know what to do with my anger. My anger? The Lord says you need to deal with it. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. They must go. Then second, the second pill is to put off. Do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And to put off is figurative of getting rid of some behaviors that are like your clothes. Lay aside these sinful behaviors just like you would take off your old, dirty clothes. The idea is to rid yourself completely of these old sinful attitudes and passions and, and resorting behavior. Every one of these behavior in these verses is used to, uh, to defend wounded egos. And our reactions to blocked goals. Anger is that long-lasting, slow-burning anger. It tends to stay around a long time. And then wrath. 
on the other hand, refers to that burning anger that flares up quickly and burns <coughs> with the intensity of a fire. It just quickly dies out. It's like burning drying grass that blazes quickly and then burns itself out. But the point is, whether it is, it's a deep-seated anger or flare up, flaring up, both need to go. So whether our reactions to life are long-lasting or sudden, we need to deal with them. Outbursts, both are wrong and need to be dealt with properly. Malice is an all-pervading evil mindset that conceives of evil things. It's a vicious nature that is predetermined to do evil to others. This person is just plain bad, evil, wicked. He has a delib deliberate intention to commit evil against another person. Slander is the word from which we get blaspheme in English. This person will use abusive speech to belittle other people and cause them to lose their good reputation. They insult people with their speech. Obscene talk is foul-mouthed, filthy talk that must go. Lies must go too. Do not lie to one another since you have laid aside the old self with its evil practices. And so Paul states here imperatively to forbid completely this behavior. Stop lying. Don't do it anymore. Now to put off is to take off completely. It is to strip off. And it is used here uh, of the old nature. You know, the, the Lord in writing to us is very realistic. Uh, and he wants us to, to have a very clear uh, mental image of what he requires, is requiring us to do. Keeping in mind the context, Paul is saying here that if the old sinful human nature really has been put off, don't be tempted to go back to it. Don't be tempted at a critical moment to behave the way you did before you believed on Christ. You are to consistently behave differently. Put on the new self, which is, which in, the, uh, which is in the likeness of God, as you, you're being created in His image. You're becoming like God. You're being renewed in knowledge after the image of His Creator. That's a goal. That's what we desire and long for. So that when we die and go to paradise, uh, our sanctification will be complete. And we will see the Lord God face to face. And we will have been conformed to His image in righteousness and holiness. As Paul puts it there in Ephesians 4.24. Put often the old man or old self, referring to the old nature, old sinful nature, 
old Adam who dominated our lifestyle need to go. And so Paul in Romans 6, 6 wrote, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that is with Christ, in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Not only are we to take off the old man, but we are also to put on the new one who lives in a new sphere of existence in Christ. You have taken off the old self that you used to be with its sinful attitudes, thoughts, feelings, volitions, behaviors, etc. That's what you've been made to be. But that's only negatively. Positively, the third pill is to put on the new self. He says there in verse 10, um, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of his creator. And then if you missed it, he says again in verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. But then someone, uh, someone might say, well, this, this is a requirement for the Greeks and not for the Jews. This is a requirement that the Lord puts for men and not for women. This is a requirement that the Lord puts for children and not for adults. Now, the Bible says here on this issue there is not Greek and Jew. Circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slaves, free. No. We all have to be the same in Christ. We are to look, we are to be conformed to the image of our God. Whoever we are, there is no distinction here. We, all are, be, uh, uh, we are all being conformed to the image of our Savior. And so no one can say, that does not apply to me. That applies to him. It applies to all of us. If we name the name of the Lord, this is all applicable to us all. Because Christ is all and in all. And he conforms all into his likeness. So put on then this new self. <clears throat> put on the new self, the new man. And the metaphor is the same in verse 9. Put on some fresh new clothes, having come from work. You go, to you go and take your shower or your bath, and you put on new clothes. You don't go back to the old, fair other ones. Put on some fresh new clothes. The present tense refers to the continual action, which is ever being renewed in the believer. Put on the new self uh, the new spiritual man who is in Christ. This new self is our new spiritual nature because of our vital union with Christ. We are in Christ. It is the regenerate self that is united with Christ. Put on the new self 
who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Verse 10. So this renewal is true of all born-again believers because Christ is all and in all. This new person in Christ is continually being renewed in true knowledge of the image of God. The image of God in us that was murdered by the fall and depravity and that sinful nature has been passed along to all of us in Adam. But thank God Christ Jesus came and he reversed the curse. Now we are being renewed by the new birth and we are made to be new Creatures created in Christ Jesus. The old is gone. The new has come. Because we have been regenerated or born again spiritually, we are being constantly renewed by the Holy Spirit with the goal that we are being conformed to the image of His Son, as Paul tells the Romans in Romans 8, 29. So the Holy Spirit reproduces more and more of Christ-likeness in the believer. And it involves this. The Holy Spirit does this sanctifying work by the renewing of the spirit of the mind. It's something that is going on all the time as the believer cooperates with the Holy Spirit. Even in our subconscious mind, the Holy Spirit is at work, applying the word, the word to our inner self. When He came to regenerate us, He never left. He stayed on, and He remains in us, and He bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. And He continues to work in us. This sanctifying work of the Spirit going on in the inner life of every true believer shows out in our, in our behavior, in our lifestyle. And so a radical change has taken place in the believer's life. What is called the, the definitive sanctification. But then there is also the progressive work of the Spirit in us. Progressive sanctification, a continual renewal and spiritual growth in grace and knowledge of Christ until we reach a level of maturity that is uh, compared here to being in the image of God. But that is in glory. This work is not completed in this life. So, so what is it then that we are to put on? We're told, put on, beloved. It doesn't tell us how, what we are to put on before reminding us that we are God's chosen ones. Remember, Paul tells the Ephesians that God chose you before the foundation of the world for a purpose, to be holy and blameless before him. And that's the same thing here. You are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. That's a description of a Christian. A Christian is in Christ, as we saw earlier, but now we are told that a, a Christian is God's chosen one, holy and beloved. And so he is to put on compassionate 
hearts. A heart of compassion. Clothe yourself with a heart of compassion, meaning the seat of emotions. In English, we usually think of the heart metaphorically as the seat of the emotions and have a tendency to place our hands to our bosom when referring to our emotions. The ancient thought of the inward parts, including heart, liver, and lungs, but with the same basic idea of the seat of emotion, put on a heart full of compulsion. A Christian will not close his heart to the needy. He will not tell the needy, go warm yourself when they are without a jacket. You know. Um, he will not even tell them, I will pray for you. Compassionate heart means that they will seek to touch the lives of those needy in their midst. We are called upon to empathize with the hurting. And then kindness. It means goodness, uh, generosity. And it's always seeking the highest good in others. Kindness is an attitude that always demonstrates itself in action. It reaches out and touches people. And then humility is an attitude of self-evaluation that recognizes one's own weaknesses and failures, but also the power of God working through the person. This is the kind of person God can use in his kingdom. It is a wholesome esteem lacking any tint of arrogance. Of course, there is false humility that is deceitful, but what we are being called upon here is true humility, whereby we count others more significant than ourselves. Then gentleness is often translated meekness, but is really power under control. It is the gentleness that is strong, but humble and courteous and considerate. This gentleness does not imply weakness, and is a better word than meekness in, in a certain way. It's an obedient submission to the will of God and gives strength to put on the other characteristics in this list. It's a fruit of the Spirit and, uh, and it's a beatitude of Jesus too. So here is the power of our personalities through submission to God and His Word. Gentleness. We're told that if we see anyone of our brothers who has gone astray or has fallen into sin, how are we to restore them in the spirit of gentleness? Then patience is long-suffering when someone provokes you. It patiently endures when under pressure of life and refuses to retaliate. It is that quality that takes time before action. It takes time to pray and consider before blotting out a response. Bearing with one another has the idea of putting up with another person, with other people's inconveniences. 
It's enduring and bearing with and putting up with people and situations. And the present tense emphasizes the continual action on the part of the believer. The only solution is to forgive as Jesus Christ set example for us. Forgiving each other when there is a complaint against one another. Forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also, it's not may forgive, it is must forgive. And I don't know who may have hurt you, but if they come to you and they seek forgiveness and pardon, you need to be willing. You must never put yourself at a place where you're saying, no matter what they do, I will never forgive them. I would say that this is, a, this is at the heart of every relationship. And you married people know this. If you're unwilling to forgive your spouse, the Bible is telling you here, remember, the Lord has forgiven you. And that has implications on your own forgiveness. Have you been forgiven? Yes. Then you have no choice but to forgive. You cannot do anything less than forgive. You remember the parable of that uh, wicked servant. He had been forgiven so much, but he would not forgive for so little. How many times we conduct ourselves like that? We think that we've been sinned against. And it's true you've been sinned against. But how much did you sin against the infinitely holy God? How much? Much, much more. The debt that you owe is way, 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 way bigger, larger. So, forgive. And above all this, the Bible says, put on love. That emphasis, you notice that put on is there three times. It's there in verse 9, it's there in verse 12, it's there in verse 14. Put on love. And it's love that binds everything together in perfect harmony. Put on love. On top of all the others, put on love. That this is what holds all the other characteristics, other virtues together. Love is the outer garment or belt, binding it all together. Love is the boat that keeps everything in perfect harmony. Love holds families together and churches together and societies together. Love is a boat that keeps everything going. The goal is the perfect board of unity. Jesus said, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He also prayed for us in his high priestly prayer, and he said, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, 
that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. So if this church is going to attract more people, it's both by evangelism and by love amongst yourselves. You are to be willing. You are to be there to gather together with others. You are to be seen together by the world around you, by the community around you. Yesterday, uh, we were at Pastor Don's house, and uh, you had all these vehicles parked there. And who knows whether there is a man or a woman in that neighborhood who has not had anyone visit them for the last two years. And they look at that and they say, wow, these people love one another. Who are they? Oh, they are Redeeming Grace Church. Where do they gather? Who knows what the Lord can do with that kind of demonstration? We are to pursue this goal of complete maturity in our relationships with one another. That perfect board of unity is visible. And that's why love is covering it all. It's, it's conspicuous. They see it. They know it's, it exists. Then the Lord here says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. The peace of Christ is the, is the, the referee that regulates the unity in the relationships in the body of Christ. The healthy body preserves the unity in the board of love. Every believer has a responsibility to maintain that oneness. Our hearts should be filled with thankfulness and gratitude for all God has done through Christ Jesus, who is our peace. And we have this peace through our vital union with Him, the peace that rules our hearts in whatever circumstances we face. So someone may ask, okay, I hear you, I hear you. Where do I... Where do I begin? Someone might be asking, how in the world do you put on all these qualities in the new life? Is it all at once? Is it one by one? Is it, is it gradual? How does it work? First of all, realize that you cannot do it by yourself. You need the help of the Lord. There is no sanctification unless the Spirit is involved. <clears throat> we cannot do it by ourselves. We must depend on the Lord. And so it's, it would be expected that there would be constant prayer for this to be true of you. The Lord told his disciples, pray that you may not enter into temptations. And that's something that needs to be ringing in our minds every time we are faced with a temptation. I must pray. I need to pray. But then Paul tells us 
in verse 16 through 17, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. What is the place of the Bible in your life? How much Bible intake do you have per day? Is it one verse? Oh, you're a busy man, you're a busy woman. You get busy and you forget. Sometimes, sometimes it happens, right? No, dear brothers and sisters, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Is that, is that a description of you? Is that you? The word of God, the word of Christ dwells. It's not that the word of Christ visits. It dwells richly. And that adjective, rich, is it an adjective? It, it just tells you that the kind of Doiling that we are talking about here is, is not just permanent, but the quality of it is rich. So we are talking about not just reading, but studying the Word of God. Or is that only the work of the pastors to study? He is paid to study the Word of God. Now, I, I don't think any version there is saying, any of your Bible version is saying, let the word of Christ dwell richly in your pastor. It is in all of us. And when the word of God dwells richly in us, then we would be willing to not only learn, but also to teach others. We all have a teaching position. We do. Because the, the older man, the Bible says, should teach the younger man. The older women should teach the younger women. Parents, you teach your children. You all have a relationship with someone that you can teach them the Word of God. We all have a Bible teaching position as Christians. But the question is, are we occupying that position? And then, this is where the rubber meets the road, the road, admonishing one another in all wisdom. Please don't tell me that there is no one in your church who needs some admonition. But the problem is that, is that uh, too many believers are not willing to admonish at all. You know that your sister in Christ is not conducting herself as she should. And you just say, well, I hope Pastor Don gets to know of this. I will pray. And you leave it at that. You might never ever get to know of it. You got to know of it, you need to deal with it. That's how then you would maintain that board of unity. Uh, admon uh, admonishing one another in all wisdom. Now you need to be winsome. You need to be caring. The gentleness needs to be 
demonstrated, but then still there is that willingness to do it. And then there is singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. How much do you sing when you are alone? Or does it say singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs when you, only when you gather? No. Um, moms have impacted the lives of their children a lot because of their constant singing as they wash the dishes and uh, look after the home. Um, the point is that we have to live a life of thankfulness to God. We have to. We need to know hymns. We need to know psalms and sing them. We need to know uh, spiritual songs. And we need to sing heartily to the Lord, not just when we gather, and I would say especially when we gather. Especially when we gather, we all were put to shame that we couldn't sing Amazing Grace uh, without stuttering when we were beginning. It's, it's a shame, isn't it? How much does the Grace of God amazes. We, we should learn that. <clears throat> this is how we do it. The Word of God has to dwell richly in us. And then our careers also, the work that we do, whatever you do, in word or deed, you do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. A brother in this church told me yesterday that uh, he, he used to work and uh, at his place of work, you know, things were going very well. And someone was, uh, he came from so far to come and find out what was his secret uh, in uh, the work that he was doing. How is it that your work seemed to be going so well? This is the verse that he brought to the man. And uh, the man was like, only that? But the point is, when you work as unto the Lord, you will not need supervision. And you will create that kind of culture in your place of work where people would take responsibility for their positions and their responsibilities. And uh, we don't wait to be told what to do. We do it. We work as unto the Lord. It affects how we live. It shows in our work, our productivity at work. Because we know that our master is the Lord. Our master is the Lord. And so <clears throat> um, slaves are later on told that they are to obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people please us, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. That was the secret of the Puritans. And I would say, the, the, the men who began this country were people who believed and lived those verses. 
And that's why America is where it is today, because the, the Pilgrim Fathers were men who walked us unto the Lord. And that's what we are being called upon to be. May the Lord help us and bless his word in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that your word will dwell richly in us. We ask that your spirit may continue to work in us. We thank you, Lord, that you're not done with us yet. You'll continue to work in us until we are glorified. Uh, Lord, we long for that day. But meanwhile, we have work to do. And your spirit has work to do in us. And our desire and our prayer, our longing, our yearning is that we would be like Christ. We would be conformed to your likeness. Please hear us, Lord. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen.